0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It was January 1973
1: in Washington, in what would be a momentous month. On January 20th, Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew were sworn in for their second term. Two days later, the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade, establishing the right to an abortion. By the end of the month, America had signed the Paris Peace Accords, marking the end of the war in Vietnam and abolishing the military draft. But January 1973 also saw an event that was less momentous, but important nonetheless. A young father became a senator, just weeks after his wife and daughter had been killed in a car accident. Joe Biden took his oath of office in the hospital where his son, Beau, was still being treated. He was 30 years old, the sixth youngest senator in American history. So began his political career. Now, 50 years later, Joe Biden is president and facing a referendum on his record and his party. With 11 days to go until the midterm elections, I'm Charlotte Howard, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what have Democrats achieved in power? For two years, Democrats have held a political holy grail, control of the presidency and both chambers of Congress. The midterms will, most likely, put an end to that. Divided government is going to make Joe Biden's agenda much harder to pass. What will the legacy of the Biden years be? Me, I have Adris Kalun and John Fasman. Adris, what has struck your eye in the past week in the run up to the midterms? It's getting to be crunch time for these candidates.
2: Yeah, that's right. It is definitely crunch time. I uh, watched with very close attention the debate between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. It's the only one that they are going to have, and it was a chance for everyone to see just how much the stroke has set John Fetterman back. Um, I think that everyone agrees that it was a very underwhelming performance, to the point that even Democrats were wondering whether or not he should have uh, stepped aside when he had the stroke back in May. As I was watching it, I had the feeling that, uh, you know, we might soon have a senator, Dr. Oz.
1: Hmm. John Fassman, you've been on the road a lot in recent weeks. What has struck you?
3: I have been on the trail. And I'm going back on next week to report an episode of the Intelligence Midterm Series. But this week, I have been home in New York. I was struck by how well Lee Zeldin did in his debate against Kathy Hochul. She's the incumbent governor. Zeldin is her Republican opponent. I'm still kind of skeptical that Republicans can win statewide in New York, but I'm less skeptical
2: than I was a week ago. And Republicans are also hopeful that they will win the governorship of Oregon, So if you're a Democrat, this is not the position you want to be in, defending the governorships of New York and Oregon.
1: I think there's a degree to which we can look at all of these races through a national lens and and how Democrats are doing nationally. Of course, each race is very contingent on local factors as well. But for the purpose of this episode, we're really going to look at Democrats on the national level and how voters view their record and that of the president. And so the biggest issue, as we know from polling and reporting, is the economy. And one way to frame Biden's economic record is to think about two kinds of problems. There's a short-term problem, which is inflation, and is probably going to hurt Democrats at the polls. But then there's also Biden's plan for long-term problems. So these include economic competitiveness, climate change, inequality, And at The Economist, we're referring to this bundle of policies as Bidenomics, because it really is a new path forward for the Democratic Party. I spoke with the economics editor, Henry Kerr, about both the short-term and long-term problems and how the Biden administration is dealing with them.
0: Well, I'd say it's pretty clear that the Biden administration's policies contributed to inflation taking off in 2021 That initial big stimulus that the administration passed on coming to office intended to ensure that there was a fast recovery from the pandemic, without a doubt, in hindsight, was too large and overheated the economy. But of course, in 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine and set off a commodities shock, which has really complicated the picture. And of course, the inflation problem has got to a point now where, to a certain extent, it's taken on some momentum of its own and spread through the economy. The cat's out of the bag at that point. In terms of dealing with inflation, I don't think the administration's done very much that's that's material, and it's really going to be up to the to the Federal Reserve to put the cap back into the bag.
1: So just to dwell on that for a second, voters have this perception that the economy is the president's responsibility, which in any economic situation is not entirely well-founded. And particularly in this one, you say that Biden did have a role to play in contributing to inflation. But now that the cat is out of the bag, as you put it, the Federal Reserve clearly has activities that it is taking now and will, will continue to take in the form of interest rate rises. But is there more that the president could be doing to deal with inflation, or is it really beyond the president's control at this point?
0: Well, it definitely would help if the federal government decided to tighten its budget it would mean the Federal Reserve wouldn't need to raise interest rates as much. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act did that a little bit, but it was really a climate spending bill. And the amount of deficit reduction in that act was not large in a way that's really going to materially influence inflation, certainly not in the, in the, in the short run. I think the strategy of saying it's the Federal Reserve's job to slow the economy is the, is the right one. And the important thing is to make sure that the government doesn't work in the opposite direction to the Fed.
1: So, we talked a bit about the enormous short term challenge in this inflationary environment, but there are longer term problems, right, that Democrats have been discussing for decades, including America's economic competitiveness compared with its peers and rivals, and also domestic issues, including economic inequality. So do you think the Biden administration has presented coherent plans to deal with those long-term problems? What do you make of the economic record with some of these bigger future-looking problems?
0: Well, there's, there's certainly a plan, and I think on some level you can describe it as coherent, the long term trajectory for the American economy that Biden e- economics, if you like, is trying to pursue is one of subsidies for American manufacturing, particularly in sensitive industries like chip making, more by American requirements in federal government procurement rules, building up union jobs in an attempt to uh, strengthen the middle class and ensuring that America maintains its technological lead in some industries versus China and catches up in those industries such as batteries where arguably it's behind, that all sort of sits together under a promoting American manufacturing heading, I suppose. So there's a worked out philosophy that has now come through in several major pieces of legislation that have been passed under the Biden administration. That is the infrastructure bill, the CHIPS Act, And the so called Inflation Reduction Act.
1: So it's kind of interesting the way you describe that because, in attempting to deal with what is an international challenge, i.e., America's long term economic competitiveness, specifically with China, there's a turn inward and support for greater government intervention in the private sector in a way that supports some of those domestic problems, i.e., creating union jobs, for instance, in manufacturing. So the bet that they seem to be making is that to deal with the increasingly competitive economic environment with China and solve the long-term domestic and economic problems, you present this bundle of solutions that involves greater state intervention and more support for American jobs. So what are the shortcomings of that policy?
0: I think the danger with that protectionist prism through which everything else goes is that it both makes policies less effective and on the international scale aggravates allies and makes the world economy less efficient and makes allies less less likely to themselves both decarbonize and successfully outrun China. And the danger is that even among America's allies, everyone turns inward, engages in an inefficient race to subsidize their own domestic industry, which wastes money and also makes the whole project of trying to ensure security of the supply chain more expensive than it needs to be, and therefore less likely to happen. So there's a trade-off here between achieving your goals and achieving them through protectionism.
1: Is there rolling back from this, or do you think the direction of travel is quite clear?
0: I don't think anyone's going to come in and reverse the moves that have happened under the Biden administration. Just like the Trump administration's protectionism has to a large extent survived, you know, the tariffs in China are still in place. I think the Biden agenda will too. That doesn't mean I'm a pessimist in the sense that I think we're inevitably going on a road towards more and more protectionism. The intellectual tides on trade do change over time. So it wouldn't surprise me if in a couple of decades we look back and see some of these subsidies as as misguided. But that's not quite the same thing as saying there's any prospect of overturning them anytime soon.
1: And in listening to Henry, it's interesting in the way that we can assess Biden's economic record, right? Because there's the ideal policy as we would design it, and then there's the politically possible policy, which is the bet that the Biden administration made. So they looked at three big areas, competitiveness with China, the need to act on climate change, and a desire to boost jobs. And they have bundled those together in a set of policies that include the CHIPS Act, include the Inflation Reduction Act, which is largely a climate package, as well as the infrastructure bill. Do you think on net that even with the shortcomings, as Henry described them, that together those pieces of legislation are a good thing for America?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think that these are the outcomes of messy political processes. We know the estimates for the climate spending and the Inflation Reduction Act in particular is that it will reduce emissions in America by 40%. If the compromise I was needed to get there was these provisions of about domestic spending, which are not exactly economist approved, that is still, I think, an improvement over the status quo. Similarly, I think that uh, infrastructure spending has long been steered towards domestic firms. We can debate whether or not that's the most efficient way of, of doing it. And I think that there's a reasonable argument that the Buy America rules that Biden has put in place are more onerous than we've seen in the past nonetheless, I think even if that detracts from the stated goal, it does achieve some things that are going to be, I think, fairly significant.
1: John, what do you make of the bundle of policies? Of course, there was this really sweeping ambition with Build Back Better, and instead, we have a set of packages that are more modest, but still a pretty big deal. Do you think that they have a lasting impact on America's economy? Do you think that they're kind of incremental? How important do you think they are in charting a new economic path forward?
3: I think they're important partly for the reason Idris brought up, which is that it will end up reducing emissions. It sort of changes the incentives when it comes to green energy. I think they also indicate a sort of bipartisan shift in attitudes towards state power. In the same way that Trump's protectionism survived into the Biden administration's more sort of dirigiste style, I think Biden's dirigism will survive into the next Republican government, because both parties seem far more comfortable with using state power, whether that is toward industrial policy, as the Biden administration is doing, whether that's towards sort of socially and politically coercive ends, as Ron DeSantis and Republicans are doing, I think that this sort of policy is going to be a lot more common from now on.
1: I think you're right on that, John. I've been struck over the years with the way that Jake Sullivan in particular, who is very senior within the Biden administration as the National Security Advisor, the way that he has spoke about the integration of domestic policy and foreign policy and the integration of economic policy and foreign policy, which in some ways is kind of obvious, but the way that the Biden administration has interpreted that in practice is really novel. So back in 2020, Sullivan, when he wasn't in the administration, was writing in foreign policy, he said, advocating for industrial policy, broadly speaking, government actions aimed at reshaping the economy was once considered embarrassing. Now it should be considered something close to obvious. And I think that's a pretty good summary of the way the mood has shifted within Washington and increasingly within both sides of the political spectrum, along the political spectrum, that you have more support for governments that are involved in big investments And I think the question about whether it's effective or not will really be answered in the coming decade. And one thing that Sullivan called for before he was part of the administration was that that industrial policy would be coupled with a new framework for international cooperation, including progress on trade. And it's really in that latter half of the policy where the administration has fallen short, essentially giving up on trade. Idris, are there any other aspects of the Biden administration's record, whether it's on abortion or any other regulatory reform that you would highlight as important?
2: Well, just if if we stick to economics, what I've seen on the campaign trail is very little mention of the American Rescue Plan. I think people know that talking about all the spending you did is not a very uh, sane strategy for Democrats at the moment. What they do emphasize are some of the cost-saving measures in the Inflation Reduction Act on Prescription drugs, which uh, out of pocket costs have been capped for. Insulin prices uh, is another thing that people emphasize and in some cases i see people talk about the student loan forgiveness program which biden didn't do through legislation he basically unilaterally said that he would be forgiving between 10,000 and 20,000 dollars of student loan debt for you know middle class families if you apply a generous definition to that but that cuts in both ways on the one hand that does give some relief and that has proven popular you see state governors are promoting checks that they're sending out to people in terms of inflation relief. But on the other hand, it is also a unilateral expenditure of probably 400 billion dollars, which if you say that, uh, you know, you're cutting spending as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, and then on the one hand, and then, you know, a few weeks later, you go and you do this, I think it muddles your message a bit. So they haven't been leading quite as much with that as you might expect as a result.
3: Yeah, I think Idris really highlights the paradox that makes it hard for Democrats, right? Biden's legislative achievements, however beneficial they are, were really expensive. And the Republican response is all that money pouring into the economy caused inflation. So it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't.
1: Okay, thanks both. We'll go back to the last time the Democrats had control of Congress and the presidency in a moment. But first, the usual reminder that with the midterms just over a week away, it's a great time to have a subscription to The Economist. John, what have you enjoyed recently from The Economist?
3: I thought our coverage of Gary Gensler was great. The finance article and the Money Talks episode jointly did real justice to the subject. I feel like I know much more about him
2: and what he wants than I did before I read and listened to them.
1: And Idris, how about you?
2: I actually have really been enjoying our coverage of Meta's woes and how they've lost 600 billion dollars of net worth which is just an extraordinary amount of money that's the gdp of a mid-sized country and i think that we've we've been cataloging that very closely and very well
1: i would second those recommendations the way to subscribe is economist.com slash us pod it's in the notes for this episode In Chicago's Grant Park, on an uncharacteristically warm November night, Barack Obama strode out onto the stage, his family by his side. An adoring crowd roared with applause and cheers, many American flags in their hands. I was in Grant Park that night to report on the election. The feeling was electric. Barack Obama had made history, becoming the first African American to be elected president carried to power on the promise of hope and change. And where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Thank you. God bless you. And may God bless the United States of America. And he was popular. For his first six months in office, his approval rating was in the 60s. Expectations were sky high. He had healthy majorities in the House and Senate. His presidency, his supporters declared, had the potential to be transformative.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama.
1: Obama got plenty done in those first two years, most notably the Affordable Care Act. It was a big effing deal, as his vice president put it, in a moment that probably wasn't meant to be caught on (laughs) mic. There was also the stimulus package to help Americans recover from the financial crisis, as well as bank reform and the bailout of the auto industry. But Republicans chafed at Obama's presidency. The healthcare Act polarized voters, and the Tea Party was ascendant. Democrats lost the House in the 2010 midterms, and there was divided government for the remainder of Obama's presidency. Republicans now controlled the House, and they were not in the mood to be cooperative.
0: It's one of the few regrets of my presidency that the rancor and suspicion between the parties has gotten worse instead of better.
1: For many, the opportunity of the 2008-2010 Congress had been wasted. Those critics would say that Obama spent too long negotiating with Republicans to try to win their support for the Affordable Care Act, but in the end, no Republican voted for the final bill anyway. With so much capital spent on health care, Democrats failed to make progress on climate change, abandoning their cap and trade bill, and Obama himself said he had regretted not closing Guantanamo Bay on day one. Immigration reform remained only theoretical.
4: Now, there's been a lot of misleading talk, which is no surprise, I guess, about what I'm proposing in my Build Back Better agenda. It's not a short term stimulus, it's a long term investment in American families.
1: Joe Biden wasn't the only Obama alumnus who returned to the White House in 2020. Many staffers had been veterans of the Obama administration. The failure of the sweeping Build Back Better bill, which encompassed everything from the social safety net to climate investments, could be seen as overlearning the lessons of Obama's first two years. The 44th president may have been too cautious, too slow, too hopeful that he could work with the opposition. The 46th president, in contrast, tried too much too quickly. In the end, Joe Biden's successes of the past two years have been the result of negotiation. For instance, with fellow Democrat Joe Manchin on the Inflation Reduction Act, and with Republicans on the CHIPS Act and gun control. Together, those bills are surely less expansive than Joe Biden hoped, but accomplishments nonetheless. John, how much do you think that the experience of the Obama administration has shaped the strategy of the Biden White House?
3: My initial reaction is to say, not nearly enough. I think the lesson of the Affordable Care Act was that Republicans were not negotiating in good faith. That is, I don't think there was any compromise worth the bill that they would have been happy with, but they did drag out negotiations. I think Biden has an old fashioned faith in bipartisanship, which is commendable as far as it goes. I'm just not sure it goes very far. So he did try to do a lot. He tried to do a lot very quickly. Perhaps that's a lesson learned from the Obama administration. But he did reach out to Republicans in a way that I think reflects quite well on him.
2: I think that Barack Obama underplayed the 60 vote Senate that he was given in 2008 and Joe Biden overplayed the 50-vote Senate that he was given in 2020. I think that the American Rescue Plan, which spent $2 trillion, which is, I mean, if, if he had been able to spend that on things that weren't basically a sugar rush to the economy, like stimulus checks, like $300 billion going to states whose budgets really didn't need it, I mean, that, that could have been very useful money. I mean, we're talking about the kind of transformative impact that $330 billion of climate subsidies will have, and and those are significant. But imagine if some of those trillions had actually been devoted to an even greater expenditure. I think that that would have been really significant. And, you know, initially in the honeymoon phase, there was basically Democrats weren't listening to anyone who said that this was too big, including critics from their own party, like Larry Summers, who warned that this would trigger inflation. And uh, once that happened, I think that they tried very hard to, again, a maximalist bill in the form of Build Back Better, initially pitched at something like $4 trillion, and the result was a lot of wasted time before we got something that was whittled down to the size that it is. I, I think it's it's actually, you know, given how hard it is to get legislation through, it's a serious uh, menu of accomplishments that they can present. Inflation makes it awkward to talk about all the spending that you did. But I think that they could have achieved more had they been a bit more sensible and a bit more realistic about the kinds of majorities that they were working with and learned that Joe Manchin was not going to yield a lot sooner than they did.
1: Given what they have achieved and what they haven't going forward, if Democrats were to retain control of the Senate, I think they'll most definitely lose the House. But what do you think realistically they could have on their agenda?
2: Well, I, I think if they lose the House, then, you know, the agenda is largely done. The Senate will mean that they're able to confirm Supreme Court justices. But um, on in the realm of economic policy, I think that the you won't get a uh, expansion of the safety net like Joe Biden originally hoped, because the House of Representatives isn't going to pass it. I think that the importance of Democrats keeping the Senate in terms of economic policy is that they will act to prevent bills that Joe Biden doesn't want to get to his desk from getting there, if that makes sense. The House will pass all sorts of uh, messaging bills, the president will have to negotiate with them, directly, probably Speaker Kevin McCarthy. But if the Senate stops those bills from getting through, it forces the Republicans to moderate a bit. That'll be a, a, a useful influence for them. But you know, in terms of actually enacting what is left of the Biden agenda, I don't think that they'll be able to do that if the House remains in Republican control.
1: Yeah, I broadly agree with you on that, Idris. And we'll be back in a moment to hear what voters think about all this.
4: We've
1: spoken about the scope of legislation passed and how much it could reshape America's economy. But there's also the very important question of how much these legislative achievements will actually help Democrats when voters go to the polls. Our colleague Stevie Hertz visited a town where residents have already seen the impact of Democratic control in Washington.
4: Nestled among the autumn foliage and strung between telephone poles... Something new has come to Dawn and Lou Calderulo's home. The internet.
0: The main feed is along the road, and then the drop comes to here.
4: Until a few weeks ago, their house in Sandwich, New Hampshire, didn't have access to the internet. Carriers simply didn't reach them. After the fibre-optic cable drops down from the telephone pole, it runs under the Calderulos' drive to their back door. To get there, that last step, they had to break a sweat.
1: So... We put on
2: our gloves and got our shovels. And ourselves,
5: yeah. I wouldn't do it again, but...
4: Uh... Sandwich is about an hour north of Concord, New Hampshire's state capital, in the foothills of the White Mountains. It's so thinly populated that cable has never been installed. Those who could get the internet got it through satellites, or DSL, over copper telephone lines at speeds barely faster than old dial-up. Checking email was possible, Zoom meetings, less so. My
5: name's Julie Dolan, and I have lived in Sandwich for 35 years. I got into this broadband business about four years ago because the service here in town is so poor. And I needed something to do after being a retired veterinarian other than killing my husband. So I figured I'd better find a job, and so that seemed pretty good.
4: Now, Dolan is chair of the town's broadband committee. It had just been formed when the pandemic made the need for better internet even clearer.
5: People were leaving town to go sit in a McDonald's parking lot to try to get enough internet to be able to do their work. So it was a terrible, terrible struggle. But in the midst of that, obviously, some government funding started flowing.
4: It's estimated that about 42 million people in America can't physically access broadband. And getting internet to the countryside has long been a rallying cry for both parties. Presidents Trump, Obama, Bush, and even Clinton all had plans for rural broadband. But during the last two years, the political will has stepped up a notch. And Sandwich was part of that.
5: We were able to secure some funding. Certainly, this would not have happened without government assistance.
4: The first opportunity came with the CARES Act under Donald Trump. But under the American Rescue Plan and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, funding was supersized, with $85 billion explicitly allocated for internet access. It takes time to filter down, though.
5: We kept calling and writing and pestering and badgering and going to board meetings, which was, I mean, I had to do that all from the Moultonboro Library. Once the Once the pandemic loosened up a little bit, I... I had no internet at home, so they keep telling me I'm tenacious. That was their word for me. I I think it was pretty nice. I think they might have another word in mind.
4: But the Biden-era funding was still taking too long. So Dolan and her tenacious committee essentially did an end run around the U.S. government. They managed to get federal money through an economic development organization. And in an earmark secured by local congressman Chris Pappas... The rest was stumped up by the New Hampshire Electric Cooperative, the internet service provider. In total, it cost about $4 million to bring broadband to Sandwich. If everything goes to plan, the whole town should have access to high speed internet by Thanksgiving.
0: To have the opportunity now to have this amount of money that we can put towards our broadband infrastructure is pretty exciting.
4: Taylor Caswell is the New Hampshire Business and Economic Affairs Commissioner. million will go to getting broadband to those in New Hampshire without a Julie Dolan to speed up the process. If it all goes to schedule, over 23,000 households, or about three quarters of those who need it, will get their broadband over the next few years. By latest, about 2026, or in time for the next midterms. Can you talk me through the stages, why it takes, you know, 18 months to start writing cheques?
0: I thought you were going to ask me, how did you do it so quickly? Um, <laughs> this has been quite a process. And in fact, we've we've had to work with US Treasury to come up with what we were looking to do uh, with these funds, have them review that, make sure that it fits.
4: Back in Sandwich, Jim Hambrook, the local land surveyor, has been using his new broadband to download FEMA flood maps.
2: They're very big files. This time, it just went went right through. And I was like, wow, this is fast.
4: The tiny town is an advert for New England charm, complete with white clapboard houses and an 18th century church. In October, it's peppered with campaign signs. The race for New Hampshire's first district, where Sandwich sits, is likely to be tight. And the election for the Senate seat in the state has been closely watched. But when thinking about broadband, Hamburg doesn't really connect it to those politicians, but rather the local activists, like Dolan. I heard this kind of thing a lot. Because even in Sandwich, where the Democrats' policies have actually already started to have an impact, the legislation that brought it still seems remote.
3: I'll
2: be honest with you, I don't know
3: who who
2: got the money and who got it appropriated. I mean, you know, it's like, I guess, I don't know. Do I live under a rock? Maybe. So,
1: Idris, In your reporting, how do you see these bigger economic issues, both in the short term and long term, playing out on the ground? Of course, this is something that fascinates us as wonks and observers, but most voters really, I wonder whether they're paying attention to this stuff. So on inflation, let's go to that. Do you think the administration has been effective in communicating about inflation and communicating what the factors are that are continuing to drive prices up and their role in helping to rein them in, if any?
2: I would say no. We all remember it's Putin's price hike, right? I mean, that message that they attempted for a while after saying that inflation would be transitory um, obviously hasn't worked. There is an argument, obviously, to be charitable to the Biden administration that most Western economies are dealing with high inflation. A lot of the increase in inflation is due to the tremendous uh, COVID spending that happened before Biden took office, you know, the American Rescue Plan, which is $2 trillion, certainly didn't help. But he can blame uh, some of those things as well. And I think the fact that he is president, while the inflation rates are, are high, mean that he's the one who gets blamed for it. And there's really not very much that can be done about that. If you look at, uh, you know, gas prices are a bit of a better metric for America at the moment, they're nowhere near as high as As they are in Europe right now, and if you look at Ron Klain, the chief of staff, and his Twitter account, it's basically a daily gas price reminder. He's trying to tell everyone that you know prices have gone down on gas, but um, you know that isn't really resonating. If you look at what Republicans are talking about on the campaign trail, it is entirely blaming the Biden administration for inflation. You know, I think that if they come into office, we won't necessarily get a solution to inflation, but it's an incredibly powerful and potent cudgel that's being used in these midterms. To the point, I mean, one thing I wrote this week is that the Republican Party, which is increasingly in the image of Donald Trump, in terms of their lukewarm appetite for accepting uh, election results in which they lose, that's a huge shift. And it's one that isn't really dominating in the current midterm cycle, because there's so much concern about the economy.
3: You may have seen the Stan Greenberg, the prominent Democratic pollster, said that Democrats touting the Biden administration's achievements not only fails to move voters, it turns them actively against Democrats. And that makes sense when you think about it, right? If you're hemorrhaging money for food and gas and now heating, you don't want to be told, look at all we've done for you, you ungrateful jerks. You want to be told what they're going to do for you. And that's just a much easier argument structurally for Republicans to make right now because they're out of power than it is for Democrats.
1: John, let's stay with you for a second. You have been in Georgia recently. Can you tell us a little bit about what Georgia voters were interested in, what they were talking about and to the degree that they were paying any attention to some of the issues that we've been debating on this pod so far?
3: So I was in Georgia to do a segment on swing voters. The ones who I talked to all brought up the economy, of course. They also brought up at least the one that I spent the most time with, they brought up abortion. Now, I suspect that's because he's a very particular type of swing voter. Our colleague Elliot Morris says that he's probably the type that we may think of as the archetypal swing voter, that is a suburban who is fiscally conservative and socially liberal, but that's not really where most swing voters are. I was there about three weeks ago. I suspect that if I went back there now, he would spend a lot more time talking about the economy and inflation than he would talking about abortion, just because that is the message that Republicans have been hammering and hammering pretty successfully for the past few weeks.
1: Idris, you've written a cover for us over the summer about the way Democrats talk about social issues. So beyond abortion, this sort of broader wokeness within the Democratic Party have Republicans been successful in painting Democrats as culturally out of touch or focused on the wrong things, issues that regular voters don't really worry about? Or has the center of gravity in political debate really shifted from anything related to, to wokeness and cultural stuff back to the economy?
2: I think Republicans have been very effective at highlighting Democrats that are out of touch and have successfully painted them as such. You see that if you talk to People who are trying to win elections in uh, Florida or uh, southern Texas, where Hispanics are basically in open revolt against the Democratic Party, they say that that's the biggest issue that they're dealing with. The fact that the party has embraced people who describe themselves as socialists, the fact that defund the police is something that only Republicans are talking about right now. Democrats have largely moved away from it, but it still is enough for Republicans to be able to to tar them with it. And the recognition that you know this sort of faculty lounge talk, as James Carville, the Democratic strategist, said, is one that Republicans are really relish to repeat as much as they can. Uh, you see, also, I think uh, a lot of discussion about gender indoctrination of kids. All of this stuff that is very much on the campaign trail. Democrats aren't talking about it. I think quietly they're trying to uh, distance themselves, but Republicans won't let them forget it. And I think that that will not as meaningfully affect the race this time around as, you know, these economic issues that we've been talking about. But um, I think that they are exerting a negative pull on the Democratic Party for sure.
1: Okay, well, we'll see in just two weeks how effective Democrats can be in these remaining days of the election in trying to convince voters that on net they've been a good thing for the country. But in the meantime, I get to ask you both quiz questions, which I'm delighted about. In May 2008, The Economist had some words of advice to Barack Obama as he decided on his running mate. We advised him to choose someone, quote, boring. One of Barack Obama's last acts as president was to award his vice president, Joe Biden, the Presidential Medal of Freedom with Distinction, which is the highest honor a civilian can receive. Presidents, however, give out quite a few medals of freedom, but very few with distinction. Question one. Richard Nixon gave out three medals of freedom with distinction at the same time. To whom?
2: Three at the same time. Um... So either a band or some sort of war heroes. No, because they would get a Medal of Honor, right?
3: Or maybe three astronauts.
2: Oh, oh, that sounds good. Maybe it's um, Armstrong and Aldrin Buzz Aldrin and, and, uh... and the other guy. <laughs> Who everyone forgets. <laughs> the other guy,
1: exactly. <laughs> it is indeed Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and the other guy, whose name is Michael Collins. They were the three astronauts on Apollo 11. Okay, this is a quick fire round, which our producer Harriet Noble has presented, knowing that you two are the extremely skilled quiz masters that you are. So this is your chance to battle it out. I'm going to list some recipients of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and you have to guess which president awarded them. Okay, Nelson Mandela, Nancy Reagan, Anthony Fauci, and Tony Blair. Which president gave out those medals of freedom?
3: Obama. Sorry, George W. Bush.
1: Correct. You'll get a point for that, even though you gave the wrong answer first. Okay, next one. Margaret Thatcher, Dick Cheney, Audrey Hepburn, and Ronald Reagan.
2: Uh, HW?
1: Correct, HW. Okay, one One for one. Simone Biles, John McCain, posthumously, Gabriel Giffords, and Denzel Washington.
2: Trump? No, Biden. Biden. <laughs>
1: Indeed, it was Biden, and then Orrin Hatch, Elvis Presley, posthumously Tiger Woods, and Jim Jordan. Trump. Indeed, had to be Trump. You know, I was actually hoping for some harder. I think that I, even I, may have gotten one or two of those right if they were asked of me. But I am impressed by the uh, the astronaut answer. Uh,
2: yeah, I think I, I think that was Fasman's. I just uh, leap leapfrogged off of that. Also, poor poor Michael Collins. I know the other guy.
1: Why is he the other guy? Why is he so much less famous? I wonder. Maybe a listener can write in and tell us.
2: He he was just on the ship, wasn't he? Did he not go onto the moon? Mm. I think he stayed in the Apollo Eleven.
1: Thanks, Adrie. Thanks, John.
2: Thank you. Thanks, Charlotte.
1: This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz, with research by Milton Vargas. Nicholas Rafast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, please let people know. And leave us a rating and a review. Our homepage is economist.com/slash checkspod, where you'll find every past episode of Checks and Balance. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. I had a really nice exchange with a listener this week. We do read your emails and write back, so please do send them to us. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.